This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. Even though I didn't know until the public announcement in 2016 that LIGO had actually detected gravitational waves, I think I could definitely sense the excitement whenever I talked to people who did gravitational waves that like, (laughs) yeah, 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 this is a really great time to be studying this. This is amazing. That's Maya Fishback. She's now a key member of a team of well over a thousand scientists from around the world. They're using miles-long instruments called LIGO to detect ripples in space-time. These gravitational waves are giving us a whole new way of observing our universe, as well as revealing the secrets of black holes. This is really fun to be talking about this with you, because it's such a new idea to me, and I guess in a way to you too. And it's opened the doors to so many new ideas and new questions. Yeah, I think it's really a new idea to everyone. Uh, We didn't know what we'd be doing once we had gravitational wave detections decades ago when the idea for trying to detect gravitational waves even originated. Like we didn't actually know what we'd do when we had them. And now we have so many. (laughs) So people were still undecided about gravitational waves in terms of whether they existed or not, until this LIGO experiment finally took shape. And you, how long have you been working on that now? Uh, So I've been working on LIGO since I started my PhD in 2015, which was a very lucky time to be entering this field because I started my PhD the very same month that the first gravitational wave event was detected by LIGO. Um, so it was it was a very fortunate time. I've kind of grown as a scientist at the same time that the entire field is growing. Is that what helped sort of push you into this field of, of working on gravitational waves and working on black holes colliding and that kind of thing? Was it that you were, here you were just entering the world of science as a qualified person and this incredible thing was happening in science at the same time. Yeah, it definitely helped uh, motivate me to to really pursue that aspect of physics and cosmology, which were what I was interested in, in studying and in doing my career on. Um, so it definitely helped that it was uh, a very exciting thing to be doing. And even though I didn't know until the public announcement in 2016 that LIGO had actually detected gravitational waves, I think I could definitely sense the excitement whenever I talked to people who did gravitational waves that like, (laughs) yeah, 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 this is a really great time to be studying this. This is amazing. Um, I don't know if I would have gotten that same excitement. (laughs) It's interesting to me that other scientists' excitement 
pulled you toward, it was a gravitational pull toward what they were excited about. So tell me, what what is it? What what's a what's a black hole so that we can all grab a quick view of it? Yeah, so a black hole is just something that is so dense uh, that not nothing can escape from it. So there's some region around a black hole called an event horizon, and if you're inside the event horizon, you can never get out. Even if you're shining a flashlight from inside the event horizon, the light from your flashlight will never escape the gravitational pull of the black hole. It comes out of the flashlight and dribbles right toward the center of the black hole. <laughs> yeah, into this point that we call the singularity. Um, so this this black hole is really just, if you take any massive object um, and you, depending on its mass, you have to compress it into a small area. So if you start from some thing as massive as our sun, you have to compress our entire sun down into just a few kilometers. And then you end up with a black hole because it's so dense. But something the size of our sun, is that in danger of becoming a black hole or does it need to be bigger than the sun to do that? Yeah. So there are kind of these two classes of black holes that we know about in the universe there are the black holes that are directly formed from dying stars. So when very massive stars, they have to be more massive than our own sun. Um, when they die, they collapse. First, there's a supernova explosion, and then the core of the star that's left behind collapses to a black hole. And so those... Um, those are the so-called stellar mass black holes. And usually we kind of arbitrarily say those can go up to like a hundred times the mass of the sun. And then starting at around a million times the mass of our sun, there are these supermassive black holes. And those are the ones that live in the centers of galaxies. And pretty much every galaxy we've seen seems to have one of these as its center. Now, are they formed by one, one big star collapsing or did a lot of stars collapse and coalesce? So we have no idea. I mean, we have many ideas. We don't know which one is right about <laughs> right. how supermassive black holes in the center of our galaxies form. So that's, that's really an open question right now. Um, it's possible that in the very early universe, so at these times when everything was mostly just big hydrogen clouds, it's possible that you could have those big clouds collapsing into something close to the mass of a supermassive black hole. And then these things are constantly feeding on the the things around the center of the galaxy. So it's possible that then they grew through this accretion to become millions or tens of millions or even billions times the mass of our sun like we see in massive galaxies today. So do I have this right? The gravitational waves you're detecting come from two black holes crashing into each other and, and merging into one even bigger black hole, right? So do we have black holes floating around in our galaxy and every now and then they happen to bump into each other? Yeah, so there are there are kind of two main 
camps for how to get these black holes to merge. Um, one scenario is that it's actually the two black holes are born in a binary star system. So the vast majority of massive stars actually live in binaries or even triples or quadruple systems. Yeah, you can you can have these these situations where it's just right. And so your two binary stars end up as two binary black holes uh, that can merge within the lifetime of the universe. And then the other scenario um, is you just have a very dense stellar system like a young star cluster or a globular cluster. Um, so my, yeah, one of my colleagues, Carl Rodriguez, refers to these as black hole mosh pits because um, you just have a lot of black holes kind of all like dancing around in the center of this globular cluster. And then eventually two black holes partner off forever and merge. Now, am I right that you're saying that there are a lot of black holes floating around in our galaxy? Yes. Um, so there are probably, I mean, there are many, many black holes in our own galaxy, but for us to see a black hole merger in our own galaxy, like the black hole mergers that we observe in gravitational waves, um, we'd have to wait a million years. So these mergers of black holes are actually fairly rare inside individual galaxies. The only reason we're able to detect so many of them is because the universe is really big and we're looking at many, many galaxies at the same time. So when, when we observe the collision of two black holes way back in time in the history of the universe, does the signal diminish by the time it gets to us, the way ripples in a pond get smaller and smaller and finally disappear? Yes, exactly. Um, so by seeing how loud the gravitational wave signal is, we learn about how distant the source is, um, whether that's a billion light years away or a hundred billion light years away. And this chirp thing, tell me, tell me about the chirp. You, you're able to convert the signal you're getting into a sound signal, which sounds like a chirp, right? What, what is that chirp? If you put the data that we detect in the gravitational wave detectors as an auditory signal, it will sound like a chirp to us because it's something that starts off at low frequency and is pretty quiet. And then it increases both in pitch and in volume. So it sounds like a, a chirp from a bird or something. Would you do the chirp? I, I, love, I love to hear people do the chirp. Yeah, I can, I, I can attempt to do the chirp. So it'll sound something like this. Whoop. So in the whoop part, is that literally the speed at which the two are, are aim, heading toward each other? And in that same amount of time, they're going whoop right into one another. Yeah, so they're orbiting around each other, uh, much like our Earth orbits around the sun. And then eventually they, well, what's happening is that as they're orbiting around each other, they're actually losing 
energy as gravitational waves. And so they're getting closer and closer together because of this gravitational wave emission. So eventually they're really almost touching. And so they're orbiting around each other faster and faster until they merge. And at the end, there's almost like this pop sound. Um, and that's what happens if you if you merge two black holes, you end up with this kind of funky looking black holes, um, like two black holes stuck together. But that system then relaxes into a final black hole that is perfectly spherical and kind of still again. Um, and so there's this there's pop sound, which is almost like this um, ring down of ringing a bell and then having it kind of settle back. Mm-hmm. So now once they once they collide and sort of become one object, are they able to do stuff? Can they cause other things to happen, collect stuff around them, be b- building blocks for new things in the universe or what? Yeah, so actually when really big question right now and the topic of my first paper in graduate school is can black holes that merge once merge again oh did you answer that question um no the the title of the paper was a question are ligos black holes made from smaller black holes and whenever you have a paper that the title is a question the answer is always maybe so we haven't <laughs> answered it definitively but since then, we've had um, some really good candidates. So, if two pretty good sized black holes, only a, f- a few light years from us, were to collide, could that do any damage to us? Yeah, that's that's a good question because people, I think, often hear of black holes, and the more they learn about black holes, the kind of scarier they sound. Yeah. Um, but gravitational waves. So the collision of two black holes is really nothing to be scared of. The energy that's emitted in these gravitational waves is extremely weak. So fortunately for our everyday lives, uh, it is very, very small. Um, That's why when gravitational waves pass by the earth, we are not like wiggling (laughs) um, and we don't feel them. Uh, But this also makes them extremely difficult to detect. Um, and so currently our detectors are arguably, um, I think, the most sensitive instruments ever built. I am not an engineer or an experimental physicist, so it's still just like so, <laughs> so fascinating to me that this is even possible that we as humans have been able to engineer such a sensitive instrument. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, really great. When we come back from our break, Maya Fishback describes how the LIGO detectors actually work. And she tells me of her hopes that the ripples in space-time that are now being detected in ever-increasing numbers will reveal how black holes are created. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, 
and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Maya Fishback. So how does LIGO work? Yeah, so LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. So the first two things, laser interferometer, describe um, how it works. And what we're trying to do by detecting these gravitational waves is to detect the stretching and squeezing of space-time. And what that means is that we have an L-shaped detector, so two arms that are perpendicular to each other, and we're trying to measure the fact that one arm is getting a little bit longer with respect to the other arm. So you can imagine if you have like a ruler that's made out of rubber. I had one of those as a kid. Um, the, and you, you kind of stretched it out uh, as the gravitational waves are moving by. And so the way we measure the distances of the arms and the relative distances of the arms is with light. So the L is the laser. Um, We shoot lasers down the two arms. And the important thing about light is that it always travels at the same speed. So if the arm gets a little bit stretched while the light from the laser is traveling through it, it will take a little bit longer to travel back. And that's what we're measuring is this difference in the light travel times um, between the two arms. Sounds like you're saying that means that these gravitational waves that are coming all the time through space are making all of us and our furniture and our houses bigger by some infinitesimally small amount all the time, but so small that it doesn't bother us. Right. And it's not just these signals from space. So the reason that we're looking at black hole collisions and neutron star collisions is because those emit really loud gravitational waves, but actually any object with gravity, so any massive object emits gravitational waves as it moves. So I'm emitting gravitational waves right now. They're just even smaller than uh, the ones from black holes. So even though the gravitational waves that are emitted by merging black holes are very weak, um, it's a huge amount of energy going into the gravitational waves. So I think from the first gravitational wave event detected, as those two black holes merged in that fraction of a second, they emitted more energy than anything else in the universe at that time. And yet, that tremendous amount of energy has such a minute effect on the pipe of the LIGO detector that it's lengthening. By how much does it lengthen the pipe? Right. So as I 
I argued before these detectors are the most sensitive things we've ever built, um, the most precise instruments to measure length, because if you used LIGO to measure the distance between us and the next closest star other than our sun, so around four light years away, um, that change in distance that LIGO could detect is equivalent to the width of a human hair. So it's extremely tiny, almost unimaginably tiny changes and distances that we're observing. So it, does it get longer by the length of an atom or smaller yeah, than that? Yeah, so I think I think it's um, around one ten thousandth of an atomic nucleus um, is, is how much these detectors are actually changing length. What do you call it? It's not a telescope, right? Right. We call it an observatory. I see. And yeah, that's are, what the O stands for. Uh, ah, I see. And so there are three of these observatories across the world. Is the one, the one in Italy is up and running now? Yeah. So there's the one in Italy called Virgo. Um, there's also one in Japan that has just started uh, taking data. That's called Kagra. And then there are the two LIGOs in the United States on kind of opposite sides of the continent, one in Washington state and one in Louisiana. So as you combine them, does that mean this is the largest observatory ever ever built? Yeah. So um, actually there are other kind of radio telescope collaborations that also use the entire earth as a telescope. Um, but that's that's really what we're doing also is we have this whole network of gravitational wave observatories working together. And that, that turns out to be really important for localizing sources in the sky is to have the largest baseline we can across different detectors. In other words, it helps you uh, triangulate and figure out where in the sky this is coming from. Exactly. Yeah. And does it also help you eliminate noise at each individual place uh, so you can rule out a truck going by or something like that? Yes. Um, yeah. So that is because gravitational waves are so weak, we really have to dig down into the noise. And so it really helps to have at least two detectors observing the exact same signal. And then we know, okay, this came from outer space. It didn't come from some local disturbance like a truck going by um, or like the clouds above that observatory moving in the sky or one of hundreds or thousands of different noise sources that affect these detectors. So if you get a chirp in Washington state and you get a chirp in Italy and, and, and in Japan all at the same time, you know it's not the ice cream truck. Yes. <laughs> yes, that would be a, a... Maybe there's an ice cream truck in space, <laughs> but <laughs> not one here on Earth. <laughs> I get the impression that in all of science, whenever a door is opened, when you walk through the door, you see another hundred locked doors that you have to figure out what's, you know, what's behind them. Are there questions that have been raised in your mind 
by by the the data you've collected, the things you've discovered through LIGO? So the pace of detection is definitely speeding up. And um, it's been a bit of a whirlwind because we're kind of improvising and like learning how to do things as we go along. Um, and we we haven't had that much time because the the first observing run of the advanced detectors started in 2015, right away detected a black hole and then detected two more black holes um, in that first observing run. And then there was a second observing run, which brought the total number of detections up to 11. Then we had a third observing run. We've only analyzed half of it so far and we're up to 50. So when we analyze the second half, um, we're kind of at a rate of like 40 events per half observing run. So we'll easily get up to 100. Um, but then the detectors are becoming more sensitive between each observing run. So right now the detectors are off, which means we're not observing gravitational waves and people who do data analysis like me are kind of taking a bit of a breather and trying to finish up our analyses on the data we already took and prepare for when the detectors turn on again. But the people who are, who are working on the instruments, so the instrumentationalists and the engineers at the site, they're hard at work improving the sensitivity and de the detectors being more sensitive means that we can see out to larger distances and then probe a larger volume of the universe, um, which means a lot more black hole events. So we'll easily get to the point where we're detecting a few hundred of these mergers every year. What puzzles are you looking forward to solving? Yeah, um, there are just so many open questions right now. So right for, for decades, we were just trying to detect gravitational waves. And I think the mentality was just like, okay, we'll detect them and then we'll be done. Like all our work <laughs> will be justified. But of course, that's like, the first, right, people often make this analogy of like, we're really turning a telescope to the sky for the first time. There's this whole universe that we haven't been able to observe before. We had no idea that black holes merged. It's like detecting galaxies for the first time, uh, right? For most of human history, we had no idea that there were galaxies outside our Milky Way. And so I think this is really as big a transformation that's happening right now with gravitational waves is, okay, we now know that there are black holes that merge out there. We know that there are neutron stars that merge, but we don't really know much more than that. So um, I think I really want to figure out where do these black holes come from? How does the universe actually make the black holes that we're seeing and how does it get them to merge? That's still an open problem. And maybe there are many different ways. Uh, nature is often creative. So many, maybe there are multiple things going on and kind of figuring out how the universe makes black holes. And then However, I'm still kind of wary saying this because every observing run we've had so far, 
we've detected so many more black holes and they weren't anything we were expecting before. Um, so I actually don't know. We just finished our third observing run recently, and I don't know when the detectors turn on again. Um, we're going to see something that I think will completely shock us and will come with a whole new set of questions that I'm not creative enough to even think of right now. Well, when you come across them, we want you to come back and tell us about them. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. We always end our show with seven quick questions. They're, they're roughly to do with science. You, you game? Yeah, sounds great. Can you remember the first thing that you were ever curious about? Yeah, I think the the first thing I was curious about was numbers and like arithmetic. And this seems really silly now, but I remember being like in kindergarten and kind of counting on my fingers and trying to like double check what the teachers and my parents were telling me about like eight plus eight. I mean, it, or I was, I wasn't going past 10, but I was like four plus four is eight, like five plus four is nine and kind of like really trying to figure that out. That's great. That's really starting at a basic level. What second question is what made you want to be a scientist? I think that, I have always, um, I guess I've always just had this curiosity that I think everyone has about like what is out there in the universe. Um, there are always things that seem mysterious. So when I was a little kid, it was like, how is four plus four, eight? But, you know, as you get further along yeah. that you get to more and more of these mysteries. And I think I'm so lucky that I get to just think about these mysteries. So science is just this framework for thinking about these deep mysteries of our universe. What part of your research do you enjoy doing the most? I think I really enjoy talking to people and writing um, and like the communication of my research. So that's one reason that I'm really, I really love being in this big collaboration. So within LIGO and Virgo, there are over a thousand scientists who are all kind of working together. And I really thrive off of that human interaction and of, yeah, and just talking to my colleagues and working together on things. So as a scientist, what was the best moment you've ever had? I think a lot of gravitational wave scientists will say this, and it's the first detection of a binary neutron star collision known as GW170817. I will always remember those couple of months after the detection. Um, it was just a completely thrilling time. What was the most thrilling thing about that? I think there was just so much happening. Um, so much was changing so quickly because we detected this gravitational wave signal from two neutron stars. And neutron stars um, are made up of stuff. Uh, they're, they're not black holes. And that when they merge together, there's this whole explosion that happens. And that happens across the whole um, electromagnetic wavelength in addition to gravitational waves. So things were just constantly changing. People were pointing their telescopes and we were just learning more and more. Um, and 
there was just so much science to be done with all of of these observations ranging from measuring the speed of gravity up to the most precise we've ever measured it before to learning how heavy elements like gold and platinum in our universe are made. So it was just so much learning and thousands of people involved at the same time and learning these really important questions together um, in such a short amount of time. It was completely intense. That's wonderful. I'm supposed to be asking you the final seven questions, but I, you just ignited another question in my head. It sounded like you were implying that gravity does not move at the speed of light. It does move at the speed of light, and we measured that. Oh, I see. In other words, nobody was sure of what speed it moved at until you were able to determine it with LIGO? Yeah, so according to Einstein's theory of gravity, gravity should travel at the speed of light, um, meaning that when two neutron stars merge, they emit gravitational waves and they also emit light. So in the gravitational waves and the light should reach us at the same time. And that's what mm -hmm. happened. Um, but there are all these alternative theories. Like we don't really know how gravity works. Like there's this whole accelerated expansion of the universe called dark energy because we don't know mm. what is causing it. So there are a lot of um, alternative theories of gravity meant to explain dark energy, for example. And those are just, a lot of them are just ruled out now because they would have predicted that gravity travels at a different speed. So you think LIGO will help you figure out what dark energy is? So I think it it will, and it is, um, because in addition to the kind of astrophysical knowledge we're gaining about these populations of black holes and neutron stars, we are also really testing gravity at this extreme strong gravity regime that it's hasn't, we've never been able to test it in this regime before. So I think dark energy is really tied to gravity and how gravity works. And that's something that gravitational waves are, are definitely helping us learn more about. So let me get to the next legitimate question. As a scientist, what was your worst moment? Honestly, probably also GW1708-17, that first neutron star detection. It was such an emotional time. Um, a lot of people very sleep deprived. So it was extremely stressful and extremely exciting. And I don't wish for another experience necessarily like that for <laughs> me. Like I think next time I would rather be on the sidelines. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just very intense and exciting and emotional. Next to last question, what gives you confidence? I really get confidence from teaching uh, and and mentoring students and lecturing. And I think um, I definitely subscribe to the belief that you don't really understand something unless you can teach it to someone else. So I, I th think I don't really feel like an expert at something un until I have that experience of teaching it to other people. And I really value that. Okay, last question. How can we help more people enjoy a love of science? 
Yeah, that's such an important question. Um, and I, I wish I could hear your answer to that too. Um, I think that in my experience, at least, especially um, when I tell people that I'm a physicist, um, then a lot of people react like, oh, that's really hard. I couldn't do that. And I think it's really important to kind of get rid of this idea that science is about knowing the answers and that there's this huge risk of being wrong. I think people are really afraid uh, that there are these facts and that you'll be wrong. You won't know the facts. But science is really about the process and it's about asking the questions. And and so I think a, a focus on, on that um, rather than the risk of being wrong. And I, I think when people say that science isn't for them, that's really a failing on us as scientists uh, that the scientific community isn't inclusive enough because I think science is for everyone. Um, that's, that's kind of what we're striving for. Well, you do a great job of transmitting your excitement about science and your delight in it to the rest of us. And I really appreciate that you've spent this time with us doing that today. Thank you so much. I had a great time talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so awesome to talk with you. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Maya Fishback is a NASA Einstein fellow working at the Center for Interdisciplinary Exploration and Research in Astrophysics at Northwestern University. As a member of the LIGO Scientific Collaboration, she was recently one of the two convening authors of a paper with over 1,300 other authors from around the world reporting on the latest 50 gravitational wave events recorded by LIGO. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. On the next Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Ray Wynne Grant. She lives what sounds to me like a hair-raising life studying large carnivores. Animals like black bears and mountain lions. She's just begun work in a new conservation area on the California coast. And this is really, really special because very few places in the world, if any, are we seeing bears and mountain lions primarily feeding on marine food resources. And so it's up to me to figure out, is this, you know, an age-old pattern? You know, have these animals been doing this in this part of California, you know, since they arrived here thousands of years ago? Or is this something that's really brand new because they've been pushed to these extremes because of, you know, so much habitat destruction elsewhere? 
So it's really this, I mean, I'm geeking out about it, but I think it's a fascinating ecological set of questions. Um, and I feel so honored that I am, you know, leading the way with this research. Ray Wynn Grant, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.